So we are, uh, we're taking the spring, better part of the summer months, to go through the book of Ecclesiastes together. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a book for anyone who is looking for something more uh, than simple answers to complex questions, than uh, trite or cliche responses to the difficulties in your life, or than a Christianity that seems out of touch with the world that we live in. And it does this by teaching us wisdom that ultimately points us to Jesus Christ, who was anything but simple or trite or cliche or out of touch with the world that he created. But now, through, who, through his death and resurrection, he is remaking this world, and it's something that we would all long to be a part of. The passage that we're going to be looking at this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible out, go ahead, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are some paperback ones on the back tables. Uh, when you walked in here this morning, you can find this morning's passage on page 618. But Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is where we're going to be at today. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16, so that whole chapter there. So recently, I got my first ever iPhone. I figured uh, it was probably time for me to climb out from under the rock I had been living in the last 30 years of my life and make the sudden transition in most of your phones from green text messages to blue text messages. For like the first week or so that I had the phone, I'd be texting someone and they'd be like responding back to me and then suddenly they'd be like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, you're blue in my phone now. You finally got an iPhone. Now, I never doubted for a second that the iPhone was a far superior device to whatever cheap $100 smartphone I was using at the time. I was just far too stingy to buy one. Um, but one of the settings on the iPhone that's actually really helpful is the screen time setting. If you don't know what screen time is, it's a setting in the iPhone that allows you to monitor and track how often you use your phone. Literally, the, the amount of minutes and hours you use your phone every day, every week, how many times you pick it up. It even keeps track of how long you use each individual app on your phone. And I started to realize you can learn a lot about somebody by looking at which apps they use most on their phones. So for instance, over the last week, I used the Maps app on my phone for a total of hour and 35 minutes. That was the number one most used app on my phone because I have a terrible sense of direction. I get lost even when I'm using the Maps app. Second was Messages for an hour and 19 minutes, Gmail for 50 minutes, Slack for 43 minutes because that's where work and funny office memes happen, BBC News for 40 minutes, ESPN 18 minutes. Now, what if I could make a screen time app for what you think about. What do you think if there was something that I could create that would log the minutes and hours that you spend thinking about everything? What do you think would be number one on that list? If you're at all like me, it's ourselves that would far and outright top the list. Whether I'm always aware of it or not, I tend to be the thing that dominates my thought life. William Temple, who was uh, an Anglican uh, minister in England, says that whatever dominates your thoughts, 
wherever your mind naturally kind of gravitates towards, whatever would be the top of your mental screen time list, that is your religion. Meaning that whether you're here today as a Christian or not, we are all followers of at least one religion, the religion of me. I stand up here as a Christian minister and say I am far too embarrassed to admit I spend so much of my week worshiping in the house of Eric. We all have this drive inside of us to live for ourselves. We all have this drive inside of us to make us the number one priority in our lives. And it's this love of self that destroys the community, society, and relationships that you and I were created to live in, and Christian or not, we all desperately want in our lives. And it's the foolishness of this self-love that the teacher in Ecclesiastes 4 is observing both in his world, but then also in our world today, as it leads to this breakdown of the community that we were designed to be a part of. So read with me the teacher's words in Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse 1. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who's never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands together and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm all alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or he may have been born in poverty with his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. Those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Three things, three things in this passage that the teacher is showing you and me about what living for self does to the community, society, relationships that you and I were created to live in. He shows us a catastrophic breakdown of community, a common breakdown of community, and then a compelling building up of community. So a catastrophic breakdown, a common breakdown, and then a compelling building up. First, the catastrophic breakdown of community. Um, 
the book of Ecclesiastes is teaching us godly wisdom, but he's doing it not through experience, like we see in the book of Job. He's doing it through observation, but it's not just observation in general. He's observing specific things in life. In the first few verses, the teacher invites you and me to sit and reflect with him on some of the most outrageous oppression of both his day and ours. Verses 2 and 3 in this passage here are possibly the most, possibly the darkest verses in a book that is already unashamedly honest about the brokenness of our world. I'm going to read them again for us right now, and as I do, resist the urge to try to make sense of them right now. Instead, just sit with the teacher and think about what he's observing in this moment. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who's never been born, who's not seen the evil that is done under the sun. When I was in middle school, I played on the middle school football team, about halfway through the season, broke my leg in the middle of a game. It was a compound fracture, my left shin just split it clean in half. And when I went to the hospital, before they reset my shin back in place, they gave me this sedative that also affects your memory. And they did that so I wouldn't have any memory of that painful moment when they put it back in place. The teacher here, I think, wishes there was something that could erase his memory of the oppression that verse 1 tells us is both pervasive and outrageous, but he can't. And do you hear the irony in what he's saying here? He says the best possible thing for living beings is to not be alive. That in the face of the outrageous oppression that he's seeing, the best case scenario for you and me would be that we were never here in the first place, which none of us can undo at this point. And now we don't know exactly uh, what it is that he's looking at when he wrote this passage here, but I don't think we really need to for us to still sit with him in this catastrophic breakdown of community. Because the world we live in today, though it may be different in some ways than the world that he was living in right now, is still one where power is abused in horrific ways on a daily basis. One example, we can just drive down the road and see the oppression of human trafficking that Central Florida and Orlando unfortunately has become a hub for. And yet here's the thing. As outrageous as this oppression is, the true catastrophic breakdown of community isn't the oppression itself, but it's the fact that the oppressed have been abandoned. In verse 1, twice, the teacher says that as he looks out on this pervasive, outrageous oppression, the oppressed have no one to comfort them. He says, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. This right here is the true catastrophe. As bad as the oppression was, what's worse, emphasized by this kind of rhythmic way that he describes it here, is that the oppressed had no one to comfort them. Because, you see, it's not only living for self that creates oppression in the first place, 
but it's ultimately what holds us back from caring and comforting for the oppressed too. Here's what I mean. If you're a Christian here today, it can be really easy to turn the Christian life subtly into being all about me. This happens uh, the moment we begin to think my standing before God is less about what Jesus Christ through God's love has done for me and it's more about what I've done for God. And in that moment when we do that, we begin to make our spiritual lives less about God and more about me because I'm my own savior. And whether we realize it or not, this then begins to permeate everything else in our lives. Everything else starts to become about us. We see the world now through a lens that says the good things in my life, they aren't, aren't a gift of God's free grace. Uh, they're because I've been a good person, I've made the right decisions, I've worked hard, I've been prudent. Bad things that happen in people's lives are because they didn't do any of those things. And so because of that, we can't comfort the oppressed. We can't care for the marginalized. All we can do is give them a well-intentioned pep talk on how to do better. And I, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm, practical help is a very good thing. That's not the comfort. Literally, the sorrow and compassion the teacher's talking about here. Because when the core of who we are starts to become living for self, when we get stuck in this self-absorbed spirituality that says, I'm my own savior, I'm the center of my life, you serve me, it makes it impossible for us to have true empathy on the oppressed and the marginalized, on people who can't give us anything back in return. This is the catastrophic breakdown of community that the teacher is observing here. That living for ourselves, me, loving me more than anything else, not only causes the outrageous oppression we see in our world, but even worse, abandons the oppressed and the marginalized who most need our comfort. But it's not just that we see how living for ourselves causes a catastrophic breakdown in community, we also see the teacher show us how this leads to a far more common breakdown in community. Right, so in the opening verses, he observes this catastrophic breakdown of community and how the oppressed are abandoned, but now he observes how living for self leads to a far more common breakdown of community. And he does it in looking at how we view our jobs in a way that sounds like it could have been written today. To be honest, it sounds like it could have been written about me a lot of days. In verse 4, the teacher says, And I saw that all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, the word that's translated meaningless there, or maybe vanity in your translations, um, there's a lot of different ways that people understand this word. Um, I think probably the best way to understand it, though, isn't with one uniform definition of it, that we use throughout the entire book, but with a slightly more general definition that can take a couple different subtleties depending on the context of where we're at and what we're reading right now in the book. Um, so for instance, Eric Ortland, who's a, he's an American Old Testament scholar, teaches at a school in London, he would agree with kind of this similar viewpoint. He says that probably the best way to understand this word here isn't meaningless or vanity, but to translate it as absurd. Because if you look in verse six, 
What the teacher isn't saying is that our work is meaningless or pointless or vain or empty. No, he's saying work properly done with a proper motivation to it is a very good thing. But that's not what he's seeing people do. No, what he sees people doing is using their jobs for things that are entirely different than what they were intended to be. And it's completely absurd. And it leads to this second, far more common breakdown of community. And he shows us how this happens primarily through envious work that we do. So in verse 4, the teacher hyperbolically says that when he looks out at all the motivations that people have for doing their jobs, it's driven by this envious competition for one another. And it's this envious work that he's talking about here that I think is also the motivation of the man that he describes in verse 7 and 8. In verse 8 he says, there was a man who was all alone. He had neither son nor brother, and there was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. In Hebrew thought, eyes were the center of desire. And so what the teacher is saying here is that even though this man compulsively worked day and night, he was never satisfied because he was always enviously wanting more and more and more than what he could get. Oz Guinness, who's a, he's a Christian author, he says, envy enters when seeing someone else's happiness or success, we feel ourselves called into question. Every time a friend succeeds, he says, I die a little. Full-blown envy, in short, he says, is dejection plus disparagement plus destruction. Envy is the feeling we get when we're on Facebook and we think, another vacation. Huh. Wish I was married to someone who had that much money. Or, wow, he must have got a promotion because there was no way they could have afforded that size of house before. You know, I work harder than he does. This just isn't fair. Thomas Aquinas, the medieval Catholic scholar, he called it sorrow at someone's success. I mean, this has got to be the epitome of living for self. And it leads to this far more common breakdown of community, especially when it comes to our envious work that the teacher is observing here in this passage. Envious work comes when we, comes when we occupy the central place in our lives, when our driving motivation is a love for self, and it leads to this far more common breakdown of community whereby we isolate ourselves from our friends, our family, and our coworkers, all so we can get ahead from the next person. I mean, this is the direct opposite of what God created our work to be. God created our jobs so that all of them, the most blue-collar to the most white-collar of them, all of them he uses for the flourishing, for the common good of humanity. But when we work from an envious place, when our work is done more about me, then our jobs aren't about serving other people, serving humanity. Our jobs are ultimately about serving Envious work is when we see a coworker who's in over their head on a project who we know could use our help with something, but we think, you know what? No. I'm not going to help him right now. 
you know, it's my turn to be in the spotlight just for one moment. I deserve it. Or when trying to outshine the next person at work turns what used to be getting home at 6 every night into getting home at 7, into getting home at 8, into answering email while you're in bed and going back in on a Saturday, thinking, it's okay, once I get to this certain spot, though, then I can relax. I mean, if we're being honest, right, like, this, is, this has got to be one of the seven deadly sins of at least our context here. And we can mask it, I think, sometimes in our workplace cultures as hustle, which is not a bad thing at all. God loves a good work ethic. But if I'm being honest, guys, I got to confess, far too much of my hustle is my envious driven work to the detriment of my family, my wife and son, and my coworkers here at Crosspoint. And the teacher, he's inviting you with him to step into the experience of this man in verse 8 and ask, will it ever be enough? He says in verse 8, for whom am I toiling and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. The man he's describing here realizes in all his envious work here, all it's done is make him unhappy and lonely. It's a far too common breakdown of community that leads to deceptively disastrous results. Because just like in the catastrophic breakdown of community, we're living for ourselves. And when we do that, it breaks down the community and the relationships and the society that we were created to live in. And this is where it leads us. When we live for self, it leads to this catastrophic breakdown of community that the teacher sees when the oppressed are abandoned, and it leads to a, unfortunately, far too common breakdown of community that he sees when we work for envious reasons to the detriment of our friends, our families, and our coworkers. but he gives us a better option. Instead of me living for myself, he opens up a picture for us of what it would look like if we were to live for other people. And when we do, he's going to show us that lastly it leads to this compelling building up of community. In the next few verses here, the teacher paints a picture for us of this magnetic, attractive, compelling building up of community that happens when you and I don't live for ourselves anymore, but when we start to live for other people. And he begins by showing us the prophet of community. In verse 9, look with me, he says, two people are better than one because they can have a good return for their labor. And then he tells us, he describes kind of what this return for our labor when we're in community is three different ways. First, support. In verse 10, he says, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity on anyone who, has, who falls and has no one to help them up. Now, most literally, he's, he's just literally talking about when we fall down and we're, we have someone else with us, they can literally help us back up. But I think also, he's probably metaphorically describing the support that we get and the difficulties of our lives when we're in community together. You see, when we're in a community that is focused on the needs, not of ourselves, but the needs of other people, you know, because you've been here at Cross Point to see it. 
you experience some of the most humbling, generous, overwhelming support that you ever could have imagined. Second, he says comfort. In verse 11, he says, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm all alone? Again, literally he's just talking about the comfort that comes when two people are together, but I think also metaphorically, he's talking about when we live in community together that's focused in love on the needs of the other person, we find this overwhelming comfort that we can't get when we're just not by ourselves. Third, security. He says, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And then in kind of the crescendo of this compelling building up of community here, he says the verse that a lot of us are probably familiar with, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. There's a lot of different ways people have tried to interpret this verse. What are the three different chords? What does it mean? I think actually this is a common kind of Hebrew phrasing that we see in the Old Testament, and it's used by people to basically put an exclamation point on something. Right? In verse 9, he says, if two is better than one, if two people can give each other comfort and security and then protection, then how much more three? The teacher is showing us here this overwhelming profit of community when we're in one that's focused not on loving ourselves, but on serving and loving and caring and giving for the needs of the people who are in it with us. And the vision he paints, I mean, come on, it's pretty compelling, isn't it? I mean, nowhere along the way in any of these verses there, is there even a hint of one person exploiting the other. Instead, all we see is this mutual care and love for each other that we were created with a longing to experience. In this community that he's describing here, the oppressed would be comforted. We would work, not from a place of envy, but for the good of the other people in our lives. Christian or not, what he's describing, I mean, come on, it's so magnetic, it's so attractive. If you knew where this place was, you'd sell your house right now, pack everything up you had, and go and live to be a part of it, wouldn't you? And yet what he's describing is not what he's seeing. The teacher can paint for us this magnetic picture of the profit of community, but ultimately, ultimately, this compelling building up of community that he's talking about here isn't the reality he sees, because along with the profit, there's also a cost to community. Everything the teacher just said in verses 9 through 12 there has to be read in light of what he says in verse 7. And again, I saw something absurd under the sun. Though the teacher can describe what community and relationships and society were ultimately meant to be, should be, what is in his life is far from it. Because there's a cost to community. And if we're being honest, what we know should be is far from what is in our context as well today. Today, we live in a highly individualistic culture that really sets up an impossible task for us in the community and the society that we live in. Charles Taylor, he's a French-Canadian philosopher, has probably the best grasp 
on uh, understanding our culture here too in America, he describes the mixed messages that we hear every day that really sets up this impossible task for you and I to create this community and relationships and society that we were meant to be in. He says, on one hand, we're told to be generous, loving, caring people, told to be people who would comfort the oppressed and marginalized, who would support and care for the friends and family who are around them. But then, on the other hand, we're also told to be self-assertive, self-actualized people, people who refuse external commitments, external expectations, people who pursue their dreams and fears regardless of what other people in their lives think. And he says the two of these, they can't live together. We can't be these generous, loving, other-centered people while also being highly individualistic, highly self-actualized people who make ourselves the priority. And it's putting us in a place as a society and a culture where we are stuck with these two competing goals in our minds that we can never make sense of. But it's not just our culture that we experience this either. Though our culture can't, our highly individualistic culture ultimately can't pay the cost of community, it goes deeper than that. Deep down, it's our moralistic hearts that get in the way of this compelling building up of community that the teacher is talking about here. You see, when our relationship with God starts to become dependent, not on what God's done for us through Jesus Christ, but what we've done for him through our good works, it slowly turns us into this self-absorbed spirituality where we find ourselves constantly looking in the mirror and either feeling incredibly great about ourselves because we think, I've done it. I've done everything that I needed to to get God's approval and favor in my life. Or we're always looking in the mirror and feeling incredibly embarrassed and ashamed of ourselves because we feel like I I've done it. I've completely failed God. Either way, when we slip into this mindset, the focus of our spiritual lives, focus of my spiritual life, becomes about me. And so because of that, we can never live a life for other people. We can never be a part of this compelling building up of community that he's talking about here because we're always using people to get something. You see, when I care for the oppressed or seemingly work for the right reasons in my life or offer support and comfort and protection to people about me, but I'm doing it from this self-absorbed spiritual place, it's not really about them, it's about me. It's not really about community and serving other people, it's about them serving me. And though I might seem in that moment like, wow, so religious on the outside, on the inside, it is far from it. J.I. Packer, uh, who's the author, he puts it this way. There is nothing more irreligious than a self-absorbed religion. On our own, we can't fully experience the profit of community because along with it, there's a cost of community that the teacher's describing. And so like him, Instead, what we see of what should be is what in the catastrophic and the common breakdowns of community that leave come when you and I live lives that are for ourselves. And what the teacher is helping us see here in describing both what is, but then also what should be, 
in it, we are left with this gap that on our own, we can't bridge. But in the gospel, God does. On the cross, Jesus, in the most supreme act of other-centered loves, died for the sin of my self-absorbed life. On the cross, he's a victim of envious people. He's oppressed with no one to comfort him. He's abandoned by all his friends who fail to support and comfort and protect him. And he experiences the most catastrophic breakdown in his community when he is even forsaken by his own father who in love sent his son to experience the misery of the cross so that through it you and I could experience the magnitude of his great love for you. And it's only through experiencing this love of the Father, Son, and Spirit working together on the cross that we can truly embrace the wisdom that the teacher is showing us here in this passage for the good of our community and our society. You see, our love of self is something so powerful that on my own, I can't fix it. St. Augustine described our spiritual reality, apart from Christ, as inward curved hearts. Meaning that on my own, sin has so rearranged the loves in my life that I will always choose myself over God or anyone else. Leaving us always bent towards the common and the catastrophic breakdowns of community we see in this passage that lead to the destruction of not only other people, but ultimately of ourselves. Because as long as we're the first in our lives, even when we do comfort the oppressed, work for the right motives, it's always shot through with mixed motives and selfish desires that I have that ultimately make it about me. But when we experience the love of God in the gospel, when we experience the love of God for us, it captures us into an even more compelling community than we ever could have imagined. Him. And when that happens, when we experience a love that is so purely other-centered, so purely other-person-focused, suddenly now our lives shift from being focused on ourselves to being captivated by Jesus, who gladly, in the wisdom of God, died my self-absorbed life. And it's then, and only then, that we can embrace the wisdom of the teacher in this passage for the good of our community and our society and ourselves. So let's take a moment now in some silent reflection on the words of Ecclesiastes 4 here. Before we do, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I confess that I too live more times than I want a self-absorbed spirituality. I make my life all about me. I fail to comfort the oppressed and the marginalized. I work for envious reasons to the detriment of my friends and my family and my coworkers. Jesus, thank you that on the cross 
You died for my self-absorbed life that in love the Father sent you to now rearrange the disordered loves in my heart and capture your love. Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would press the truth of this passage deep down into our hearts. Amen.